Mission Impossible. Remember the movies? There's Tom Cruise defying the odds and fulfilling the impossible. Dangling on wires, sneaking into laser (laughs) sensor buildings. It's exciting. It's nerve-wracking for the first time, second time, third time. Pretty boring because you know exactly what's going to happen. But it's explosive. It's dangerous. And so is Paul's second missionary journey. It's thwart with danger, exploding with developments. As he moves into Europe, the power of the gospel is at work. Look at the green stars. That's where Paul uh, has been since Johnny preached uh, last Sunday. Philippi, we left off last Sunday. Uh, And there he wanders through Amphipolis and then through Apollonia. And then we find him in Berea. And then Thessalonica. Remember some of the people that he's come across. Remember some of the impact that the gospel has had. Lydia, the rich trader, the fortune telling slave girl, the jailer who had the hump. His life has been turned upside down and so has his family's. Look, we know that Acts is a historical narrative. It's stories of real people in real times of history. People that walked under the same sun as we do. People that go to bed under the same moon as we see. This is Acts. It's history. The gospel is moving. And as people come under the sound of the gospel, lives are transformed. Lives are turned upside down. Hope is on the move. The church is being established. God's people are being added to. We get that. Do you see that through Acts? And you see, it's not mission impossible. (laughs) Not God's mission. No, no, it's mission unstoppable. Because we know the outcome 2,000 years later. The gospel has reached me. The gospel has reached you. The gospel has reached the people of town church. The gospel continues to transform lives. We have the third week of Explore More later on this month. We hope that 10, the 10 uh, that have been before, we hope that they'll come back. We hope that more will be added. We hope that God, by his gospel, by the good news, will continue to build his church. That's what we hope for. But you see, when the gospel goes out, it's never been without opposition, ever. When the gospel goes out, people react. And we watch the reaction of the people throughout Acts to the message of the gospel. And we witness the bravery of the apostles and Paul and his companions as they travel around Judea, Samaria and now into Europe to the ends of the earth. And as we consider the decision making and the strategizing and the reaction to others reactions, we see that the spirit is in charge and in control. Johnny taught us that uh, last week. No, it's the spirit that moves, that directs. He's the one who's in charge. And yet we see courage. You know, we see real courage in spite of opposition. We see wisdom to move on from city to another. And of course, as we read these stories in Acts 
and we map the journey, of course we're supposed to reflect on our own. Of course we are. The gospel has come to the ends of the earth. We're supposed to reflect on, on, on how are we letting the gospel affect our lives? How are we living? Uh, of course, we're supposed to reflect on, on how are we now taking the baton to others? Acts is all about movement, momentum. And of course, I come to Acts and, and, and I look in the mirror. I have to and think, where is the gospel going now the baton has been handed on to me? I don't know, as I read Paul and his companions, I can't help but think, what would I have done there? Would I have been brave? A hate mob got together and ran them out of Berea. They came to Thessalonica, 40 miles away from Berea, and the hate mob had followed them and stirred up the crowd before then we get to Athens. The believers in verse 14 of chapter 17 that we've just, we haven't just read, but just the verses before David read, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Would I have kept going? Would I have packed it in and headed home? Would I have had the courage? Would I have had the wisdom, the stickability? No. Do you know, I I think not. I think not, because I fear, I fear what others think too much. I think I'm fearful of man. And I think if you were honest, not all of you, I know, but I think uh, some of you, perhaps the majority of you, uh, would agree. I'm fearful of what man thinks, not man, but the people of Bister. I'm actually quite scared of what they think of me. I'm scared of how they'll treat me if they find out that I trust in the Bible. And actually say I love Jesus. I'm quite scared of what people will think of me. And as we read Paul and his companions through Acts, we see how they deal with opposition. And I'm meant to look in the mirror. So come with me for two points as we get to Athens. There's two things uh, that we're going to look at. Paul's tactics in sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Uh, and then a reminder of the great and glorious gospel for ourselves. They're the two things uh, as we uh, deep dive into uh, the, the gospel going out uh, to the capital uh, of the modern world, which was Athens in those days. Let's go with the first one, Paul's tactics in sharing the good news of Jesus with others. He's got good news. Of course he has, Paul. He's got good news to share. I got a message last night from a friend who had good news to share. Yes, up the red men, uh, it said from a friend uh, from Liverpool. I think he knew what, I think I knew what he meant. I didn't answer, I just uh, received it in my uh, inbox. He had good news to share, apparently, that Liverpool won the FA Cup. And when you've got good news to share, you can't hold it in. 
Yes, up the Redman. He wanted to share it. Paul's in Athens. He's waiting for the others to join him. And yet with this good news, he's greatly distressed. So he's got good news, but he's greatly distressed. Why? Verse 16. Because it's a city full of idols. What does he do? He goes to the synagogue and he speaks of Jesus, his death and resurrection. That's what he does. He confronts the idols and so he just speaks the truth. He speaks the good news. See how they react. Verse 19 of 17. Then they took him. They brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus uh, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. And so he sets forth his reasoning. And it's a great form of apologetics, as we see, kind of Paul the master. And, and Acts 17, we won't spend all our time here, but we can't jump it. It's a text used to help people understand apologetics, understand the difference between classical apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. Don't worry about those words. But, but, but here's the difference. Classical apologetics is it, kind of approach that gives a defence For why believing in God isn't crazy. It's based around logic. Let me prove to you why my belief in God is not crazy as you think. That's classical uh, apologetics. There's a time and a place uh, for that. Of course, lots of ink has been spilt on the reasoning for classical apologetics. But here there's a text that talks about presuppositional apologetics. See what Paul does. He does this quite brilliantly. Because what he does, he deals with the foundations or the assumptions as to why people believe what they believe. Why the people in Athens think how they think. Why they act in the way that they act. What Paul is doing, he he challenges the ultimate commitments of people. What they're ultimately committed to. And he does two moves. Here's the first move, move one. He enters into the worldview of those that aren't Christians. He tries to understand where they're coming from. And then he seeks to expose the incoherence, the inconsistency of their ultimate commitment. You see? You see what he does? Look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting and he said people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He gets alongside them. Kind of a gentle pat on the back. Uh, To an extent. I see that you're very religious. I, I see that you're switched on. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of Worship. You see, he, he gets the culture. He wrestles with the worldview. He tries to understand them. He, he, he gets amongst the, the ultimate commitment to the city. The commitment to philosophy and the wisdom of the age and the latest idea and the religiosity. And then when he does that, he exposes the inconsistency. You see straight away. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship... 
I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. He exposes the inconsistency. You think you're religious just just in case there could be another God. Let's form an idol to him. Just in case we've missed one out. (laughs) You see, you haven't got it at all. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. You've not got it. You've not grasped it. This is what I am going to proclaim to you. That's move one. Do you see that? It's like he understands the specific belief system that he's engaging with. He kind of affirms them to an extent. There's always common grace, some good in any belief. So, so it looks like they're, they're trying to get their heads around God or gods. And then in move two, look what he does. He exposes them. He shows them how the Christian gospel is uniquely able to give them what they long for. He exposes them. Trying to believe things haphazardly in the dark without Jesus. In their worldview, look, it will never give them the things that they want. Because they reject the God who made them. And as he then exposes them, he subverts their beliefs by showing that the gospel uniquely offers what everything else they've put their time into, their thinking into, can never give them. But they've got to be prepared to acknowledge their sin and come to Christ. It's a great passage if we're to think about how we speak to friends who don't know Jesus. How do we do these two moves How do we affirm and try and understand the people that we live with? If you're a Christian, of course you'll get this. If you're not a Christian and listening in, this is really important for for Christians who, who trust that this is the greatest news in the world and need to speak about it. To understand what our friend's belief system is, what they're ultimately committed to. What is that? To wrestle with that. And then to affirm that, of course, not to point the finger straight away and tell them they've got it wrong. No, no, no. To actually affirm them in in some good thing that they're trying to understand or progress or or giving their life to. But quickly exposing that actually what they're holding to or believing in or trusting in, it will never give them ultimately what they want. So then we speak of Christ into that place. How do you do that with your friends? How can we do that as a church? We we talk about this at times. We don't talk about it all the time, of course, because we just want to live out Christ. But we want to speak of him. That's quite quickly follows, of course. We want to speak of the hope that we have within Second point, it's a reminder of the great and glorious gospel for ourselves. And I've uh, put the points up here because I want you to follow these points. Look how Paul brings the good news of Jesus. Look how he helps them understand this God. This God who they haven't named. Now Paul is going to tell them exactly who this God is. Verse 25 
He is not served by human hands as if we needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I've jumped ahead. Sorry, verse 24 I was meant to go with. Look what he does. He shows them that this God is all sufficient. And so he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. See this God? We do not create God. Just by creating an an idol with an unnamed God to it, that's not who God is. (laughs) This God He created us. Of course we can't create God. God cannot be created. He's the God of all things. Paul says, this is the God that I'm explaining to you. And then secondly, verse 25. God is not dependent on us. We're totally dependent on him. Verse 25 says, and he is not served by human hands. As if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And Paul is saying, look, here's God. He distributes everything. Life, breath, everything that you have. It's God's. He's not dependent on praise or worship. He's not held up by you and your best thoughts. He's the one that gives everything. He doesn't need anything. Let's take a moment to reflect on that in life. He gives everything. Everything. Your job. Your home. Your intellect. It, 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 it's God's. Some of you might want to come back and go, yeah, yeah, but of course it's me as well. But the point is, it's God's. He gives everything. Your relationship, your husband, wife, your children, your singleness. It's God's. He's given it to you for your good. Your finances, your hobbies, God's. Your health, your heartbeat. Fitness is God's. God's not dependent on you and your qualities. He's designed you so that you're totally dependent on him. That the people at town church today would say it's all God. It's all God. It's not me. Totally dependent on him. The next breath I take is because God says so, not me. Then he moves on. God is not lost. No, he's revealed himself. Look at verse 26 through to 28. Let me read. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this. So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God has revealed himself. It's seen in the creation of one man. He is there and he's not hiding. God's not lost. We are. Was it Bertrand Russell? I think that said, this is why I don't believe in God, because there's just not enough proof. When I get to heaven, I'll tell him, I'll look him in the eye and say, there was just not enough proof. And Paul says it's the absolute opposite. 
No, God has revealed himself. It's you that's lost. It's you that needs to be found. He's very close. Verse 28, so Paul is saying, for in him we live and move and have our being. Here's the God. He's created us. He's not dependent on us. He's not lost. He's created us for relationship. We're made for the most intimate relationship where Paul is saying, in him we live. So foreign for the people of Athens who held out the gods at arm's length because they dare not get close. So foreign for the people of Bista to talk about a God who's relational. He's God. He's created. He's not dependent. And he's not lost. Verse 29. God is not designed, you see, we're designed. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. God's not an idea. He's not a blueprint. No, we're the designed. We're God's offspring. He's created us. He's created us in his image. We're dearly loved. We're given purpose. And purpose that we've been given is from God to do what he wants with. It's his. Corabel makes the brownies in our house. They're good brownies. She makes a batch every so often. And I can smell it coming from the house, coming from the outside into the house. Oh, Corabel, nice brownies. And immediately I want to tuck in. Immediately. Reach for the biscuit barrel. See, Corabel's got the right to say who the brownies are for. Oh, Corabel, tasty these. As I'm about to dive into my first brownie. No, Dad. Not for you. You know they're for Talitha's party. Stop. Don't eat them. See, because Corabel's created them, because they're Corabel's and she's made them for a purpose, I can't come in and do what I want with them. They're not mine to eat by right. Of course I waltz in there, oh, these are tasty, give me some. No, no. You see what Paul is saying? You see what we've done with God, dear people of Athens, dear people of Bista. You see, we've made him into Our own creation, our own design, our own purpose. And Paul says it's it's the absolute opposite. It's the flip. It's all of God. And so he says, repent. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. See, he will judge. He's set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He will bring justice. It's such a good thing that Paul speaks about justice. He will judge. 
How will he do that through this man, Jesus, the one who now lives, the one who reigns on high, the one who's conquered death? That's how he will judge. So repent. Turn back. Turn around. Stop walking in ignorance. I've brought you the good news. Do something with it. Recognise your rejection of a holy God and turn. Turn, 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 says Paul. See one significant difference against all other religions. See what Christianity holds. A pinpoint moment in history that points to this man, Jesus. It's in him. He's the one who will come again. And we know this because he was raised to life. He's alive. Death could not hold him. And what's the result? Let's finish up. Verse 32. Some of them sneer, laugh, joke, perhaps throw a stone or two. Some are intrigued. We'll hear you again on this, they say. Come back. And some believe. Look, we all know people that react differently to the good news of Jesus. Those who've accepted it, those in the room, trust it's for them. Those who reject it, either they're nonplussed about it, it's not relevant for them, they firmly disagree politely, or or they're aggressive towards it, towards the messenger. See, the good news of Jesus always does that. It always provokes a response. It always will. It always has. What are we going to do with this good news? I wonder where your thoughts have been. Have your thoughts been in tactics of how you share the good news of Jesus with others? Have your thoughts been on a reminder as Paul has set about this great and glorious God, whom is ours through the great and glorious gospel? It's yours. It's yours if we trust. It's yours if you Hold on to it. It's not about you. It's about God. He creates. You're the created. He's not dependent on you. He's totally independent. See. See what he's done. Through Jesus. Loves you greatly. You're his offspring. And he's calling you. Back into relationship. And he's calling you to continue. In relationship. So. The fear of man. And what man can do, when I keep hold of the glorious gospel, do you know the significance of man and the effect that man can have on me? It it pales into insignificance. How, How easy that is for me to say here and how hard that is to trust on a Monday morning. That is a jump. But I just do not need to fear what others think because I've got the glorious gospel. He's mine. He's mine. And he loves me.